Hallelujah. Father, this day we are mindful of the holy name of Jesus Christ. As we saw his name proclaimed in the Gospels, the power of the name of Jesus sent the demons inhabiting the demoniac into a herd of swine careening off a cliff. The name of Jesus brings deliverance from the forces of evil. We saw the name of Jesus blowing back the guards at his tomb. The confession of the great I am incarnate in flesh and with his resplendent glory shining to his disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration, the great name of Jesus revealed to them what was an overwhelming sense of amazement, glory, power, and awe. The name of Jesus kept our Lord and Savior from lingering in the grave. Those three days having fulfilled the necessary conditions of satisfying the atonement of the elect, the name of Christ championed, triumphed over death and the wages of sin and rising again on the third day. And we confess that the name of Jesus, there is coming a day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. For those that gather in your name, Lord Jesus, today, who confess with love and affection, with joy and with reverence, Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. We thank you that the Spirit has moved us to repent of our sin and to bow before His glory, majesty, and atoning work and confess that He is our Savior. Now we pray that as His Word is proclaimed, that it would stir our hearts to more faithfulness still and a more bold confession and a more consistent life lived in light of His glorious reign. We pray that as Your Word is preached, dear Jesus, that Your name would go forth through the proclamation of this sermon and hundreds, thousands, if not more, across this globe that seek to champion without equivocation, without adulteration, the name and word of our Lord Jesus. We pray that that testimony and proclamation would go forth to call the lost to salvation, sinners to repentance, the proud to be bowed low, and those who confess their sin to be lifted up, that in the name of Jesus Christ, a revival might burn like a wildfire across this land, proclaiming the glories of Yahweh in flesh, our Lord and Savior, who moved heaven and earth to save his elect. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity that you've given us to gather in that holy name and to consider the word of Christ, which never fails, never returns void. It's true and precious and holy and immovable and awesome. Now, as your word is proclaimed, may our hearts appreciate and our minds be open to comprehend. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Hallelujah. This morning, as you're able, I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Matthew 19. And let us consider this morning verses 1 through 9 under this title. Marriage or human sexuality, according to Jesus. Jesus is confronted by the powers that be, the religious authorities, if you will, at the time, at least the ones that most people culturally recognize, namely the Pharisees, and he is put on the spot. And we find under this condition that he reveals something of the nature of marriage with authority that blows his hearers away and proclaims for all time the glorious God-honoring uh, nature character, testimony, 
and forever reality of God's design for us in our relationships and His glory for all time. <clears throat> the theme of this morning's message, and for their explanation in a moment, is to stand with Christian preachers calling kings and cultures to repentance unto their Creator and His created order. The aim of this morning's message, my sermon today, is to stand with Christian preachers, particularly in Canada and cultures, to, and uh, to stand with Christian preachers calling kings, rulers, magistrates, authorities, legislatures, kings and cultures to repentance unto their Creator and unto His created order. <clears throat> Would you stand with me out of reverence for the reading of God's Scripture today? And then I will introduce more for the vision of today's message. Considering you're hearing the Holy Word of God read from Matthew 19, verses 1 through 9. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, He went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed Him, and He healed them there. Verse 3. And Pharisees came up to Him and tested Him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and then shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Verse 7, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. This is the word of God. You may be seated. <clears throat> As I mentioned last week, today is the day. On this date, pastors in North America and beyond have joined in unity of purpose to proclaim to courts, to parliaments, to legislatures, to magistrates, to all who will listen in our own congregations, the obligation and accountability to Jesus Christ that we all have, especially on matters pertaining to marriage and human sexuality. We, Christian preachers, thus faithfully convicted, echo the summon of the Holy Scriptures, which declares to us in Psalm 2, 10 through 12a, quote, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Today, January 16th, 2022, according to a bill labeled C4, recently unanimously passed in Canadian Parliament, Christian pastors who preach the biblical truth on God's design for marriage and sexuality to the exclusion of all profanation, all perversion of the same, are breaking the law. Our neighbors to the north have adopted the following language into the body of their criminal code. Quote, listen closely because there is much criminal code or law or legislature proposed or passed in our culture. In California, for instance, has considered an anti-so-called conversion therapy ban 
as well as legislation before Congress has been submitted and resubmitted under similar consideration. Listen to this, quote, Conversion therapy causes harm to society because, among other things, it is based on and propagates myths and stereotypes about sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression, including the myth that heterosexuality, cisgender identity, and gender expressions that conform to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions. Do you understand what the language of this bill is saying? It is saying that what we read and what we have heard in our hearing today from Matthew 19, 1 through 9, is a myth and a stereotype. May the condemnation of the Lord fall upon all who believe or proclaim such thing until such time as they repent. That is false. That is heresy codified by statute. It will and must be called out. It has been called out by our Lord. And faithful ministers are called to echo the same. And thus we stand before you today to do this. What is conversion therapy according to the newly adopted Canadian law, you might ask? Let me continue to read. Quote, a practice treatment, or service designed to A. Change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual. Change a person's gender identity to cisgender. Change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to that person at birth. Repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior, close quote. A sex assigned at birth, as if it were arbitrary? Our scriptures tell us today that in the beginning... God created them male and female. Jesus Christ is Lord, Savior, and Creator. It is He. It is the Sovereign over nations. It is the one who spoke this world into existence and you and me by the word of His power in the first place that assigns to us our identity, sexual or otherwise. This law stands in direct violation, blasphemy, and rebellion against Jesus Christ, who is Lord and whose word will not be contravened, and who will not be mocked. There is a day of reckoning coming. This edict continues with language so broad and nebulous that one can reasonably conclude from a basic reading of the legislation that what I am about to preach this morning is now illegal in Canada. <clears throat> and if present trends continue, may soon be illegal here. God forbid, but the way this culture is going, it would be foolish to consider that that is not a possibility. Thus, I stand in solidarity with my brethren across the border to defy the Antichrist edicts of tyrannical authorities and to call them to repentance, along with any of our leaders, our own leaders, so inclined, lest they perish in the way when the one true sovereign over all nations summons kings to his court on the great day of reckoning. And saints, this also is a message to encourage you to stand in a culture, in a time, among a people, perhaps a nation, perhaps future legislation, where your convictions and what the Bible says is so unpopular that it may be deemed unlawful and carry with it the penalty of imprisonment, fines, or otherwise. You need to be encouraged that when you stand with the Lord Jesus Christ, you stand with the one who has conquered death, rules over kingdoms and nations, and regardless of what he has prescribed for us in his providence by way of suffering, in the end, we'll have the glory. We need the faith to endure faithful unto him, proclaiming his word, whatever the cost, so that when that day comes and we all stand before him, kings and paupers alike, 
we may hear by the Spirit's use of His means encouraging His saints these words. Well done, my good and faithful servant. This is the call. Under these conditions, we rise as Christian preachers to proclaim the truth of God's Word and declare that it cannot, will not, and is not changed, and that we must, therefore, echo the same and repent if we fall short. Let me give you a heading and the authority for my message today, which comes from the Word of God and particularly the words of our Lord during His ministry. Here's the heading. <clears throat> Defying the rulers of His day, Jesus declared the following. Defying the rulers, the ecclesiastical authority, particularly the Pharisees, in this case of His day, Jesus declared the following. Number one, the cultural corruption of marriage was prevalent at the time. Number two, He declared the author and authority over marriage. Verses four through six. Number three, he declared the covenantal context of marriage in 7 through 9. There are many who have joined in this effort to take a stand and to join in solidarity with those in Canada and other places to proclaim what Jesus has said as absolutely true. And thus, we are about to consider the words of Christ in this context today. Cultural corruption of marriage. 19.1, notice this shift in audience as Jesus moves from Galilee closer to Jerusalem and where his followers are, where as they were one time the poor and the humbly receptive to his teaching and are the proud and the self-exalted elite which take issue with what he says. Verse 1, now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Verse 3, and Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Followers versus Pharisees. Which are you? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ or are you a Pharisee? How do you know the difference? How about the magistrates? Unanimously, this law was approved by the so-called, whatever the parties are in Canada Parliament, the so-called conservatives, unanimously supported this bill in defiance of the never-changing, unfailing, indisputable word of Jesus Christ. Which are they? Are they followers of Jesus or Pharisees? You see, the follower comes beseeching Christ humbly, sitting at his feet, recognizing that he falls short of the understanding and seeks to glean an understanding of himself and the Lord and his kingdom. He sits and listens with rapt attention as the Lord proclaims to him the nature of truth and ethics and morality and how one might be saved from his sin and ransomed by the power of the shed blood of Christ alone, to be counted worthy to fellowship with him in his holy kingdom and presence through the means that he supplies in his broken body and his shed blood. That is a follower. A follower of Jesus Christ may not fully understand. He may come with preconceived ideas. He may not have a notion in his head of what the gospel is, but he sits at the feet of the sovereign, of the savior, of the authority, and he listens and he submits. And he repents and he believes. Not so with the Pharisee. A Pharisee comes with preconceived ideas and crosses his arms and seeks to judge and consider critically and skeptically what he hears this man saying. Why? Because Jesus Christ is a threat to kings and people and Pharisees in authority if they do not bow before him. Was this not true of Herod? We preached on him during our Advent season. He recognized though Jesus was but a baby. If the people believed these prophecies and this king arose to prominence, 
then his seat would be threatened. And so what did he seek to do? He set his face in antichrist policy against the future Lord of glory, who was in fact Lord at his birth and sought to kill every child under two in Bethlehem. And likewise, the Pharisees seek to rhetorically slaughter Christ, to set him at odds with the people so that he is not influential or able to persuade them of his truth and thus diminish their authority. That's the difference between a follower and a Pharisee. Large crowds were seeking Jesus. They needed him. They recognized their desperate case. They were sick. They were blind. They were poor. They were maligned and oppressed in many cases. And for them, Jesus represented a savior and a sovereign and a hope and a future. But there were those who enjoyed prominence and positions in society. And for them, Jesus Christ represented a threat. Again, I ask, which are we? Which are you? A follower versus a Pharisee. This contingency of Pharisees sought to entrap him. This was, we see, incriminating intentions in the text. The reason they asked Jesus the question isn't because they wanted to honestly seek his answer. No, they, they hoped that with his answer, he would entrap himself. Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Tested him. What does that mean? Well, they didn't seek healing. They didn't seek understanding, salvation, or deliverance, or provision by asking Jesus this question. Though, no, they meant to oppose and to disparage his ministry. These were skeptics and cynics approaching Jesus in the heart of blasphemy. Where do you get this authority to judge us? You see, at the time, there were cultural presumptions and perversions of marriage. And just like we have cultural presumptions and perversions, as testified to by that bill language I read a moment ago, today, so they had them then. Three schools of thought dominated the conversations along the idea of what is permissible or forbidden as far as marriage and divorce were concerned. The rabbis were divided, and one big school with big followers said, only if your wife is unchaste can you issue her a certificate of divorce. Another said, even if she spoils your meal in the morning, for any little small infraction, you can and are allowed to divorce your wife. And a third said something, well, even if a man meets someone who is fairer and considers fairer than his wife, he is allowed to divorce her. And different people aligned with these different schools of thought. And there was a bitter rivalry going on. It didn't matter what Jesus answered. The Pharisees didn't care about that. They just wanted to get him on record because they knew whoever he sided with among these famous rabbis, it would put him at odds with the others and would set him at enmity with the people and diminish the clarity and the power of his voice and reduce him to uh, arguing the petty arguments, the cultural presumptions and perversions of his day. Boy, did Jesus blow their plan out of the water. Boy, did he surprise them with his answer. This is the Lord of glory after all. He questions the premise of their self-incriminating question, answers by taking a view that is above the petty squabbles of his day and reiterates what has always been the case according to God's created order from the very beginning, setting these false teachers and their claim to authority in their place, reducing them in an embarrassing mic drop to the sniveling idiots that they truly were. And this didn't make them any happier. After encounters like this, these men went on to plot and conspire 
not just to defeat him in their rhetoric, in their arguments, but since that was proving ineffective, to kill him and send him to the cross. The cultural and presumptions, the perversions of this day were prevalent and they distorted people's views. They created a lot of ambiguity, confusion, and distractions, and they blinded people to the truth of what God had spoken. But now, for those with ears to hear and eyes to see, Jesus Christ was proclaiming the truth of marriage. So we see that Jesus defied the rulers of his day by declaring the cultural corruption of marriage in his day deserved not to be respected, but must be rejected. That Pharisees did not sit in the seat of Moses. Why? Because they did not sit with the authority of God's word that Moses declared. They were to, they, Jesus condemned them time and again as whitewashed tombs, as presentable on the outside, but inside full of dead man's bones. And he answers them in this way to tear down every false authority and ruler that would exalt himself above the knowledge of himself and to have said to reassert and, and to proclaim for all time that the Lord and his word truly reigns as a standard for righteousness of law and ethics from the beginning and forevermore. Second major point. Defying the rulers of his day, Jesus declared the author and authority over marriage. Notice verses four through six in this context. We'll read them in a moment. The question was, who gets to divorce his wife? The answer to this question, I submit, is also the answer to any other question that challenges the premise of human sexuality or marriage for all time. Can homosexuals marry? Jesus' answer is sufficient to refute that question as well, or to answer it with an unemphatic no. Can, uh, multiple, can a man marry multiple partners according to God's intent for marriage? No. Is divorce something willy-nilly that we should pursue such that marriage is a soluble institution on the whim of the individual? No. Um, can we redefine marriage for a new era? After all, the culture is so much different than it was then. Jesus' answer is the same in every case. No. And with his answer, he establishes the once and for all time parameters, the terms and conditions, if you will, for human sexuality and marriage. Now, the author and the authority over marriage has the ability, he has a prerogative, he has the right to establish what these terms and conditions are. And I hasten to add, not the Canadian Parliament, nor the Supreme Court of the United States. Bill C-4 and the Obergefell ruling by SCOTUS do not carry any weight in the kingdom of God. They do not, even though they presume in their arrogance to redefine, to overrule the word of Jesus Christ, they do not carry any weight in authority. Because they're arbitrators, and the culture that supports them is neither the author nor the authority of marriage. They didn't make themselves, create themselves, or institute their own relationships. Therefore, they have no right to redefine them in their own image. And as they proceed to do so, they're simply buying the lie of Satan from the garden in the first place. You can be as God. No, you can't. That's a lie. And you will prove yourself foolish if you try to ascend the ladder to glory by your own Tower of Babel. And by the time you get to step 35, 36, when maybe 100 and whatever, you will crash. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. In the providences of God, he sometimes takes the wicked like an eagle does a crustacean, high above the cliffs. And for a while, it seems like, wow, 
Why are the wicked so exalted? Why are these laws suffered? Why do they pass? Why does it seem like we have these wicked rulers over us? The analogy that Spurgeon says is when that eagle has risen to a sufficient height, he releases that clam from his claws until it's dashed upon the rocks. Quite literally, the analogy illustrates the greater they are, the harder they fall. And Canadian Parliament Bill C-4, Obergefell, the Supreme Court of the United States, and the culture of the West who seeks to exalt perversion above the knowledge of God will fall hard in judgment if we do not turn from our wicked ways and repent and declare that Jesus Christ, the author and the authority of marriage, has the right to define it, and his word stands today as strong and secure and assured as it did the day he breathed life into Adam and he became a living being. And the moment he took a rib from his side and created a woman to be his helpmeet. The author and authority of marriage, listen to the following, verses 4 through 6. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Very quickly, let me give you six terms and conditions of marriage that we can derive from Jesus' verses here, these three verses of his words. Summarily, the terms and conditions of marriage or human sexuality, according to Jesus, are the following. Number one, they are established according to scriptural revelation. Scriptural revelation is the standard of what marriage, human sexuality is, human relationships, covenant bonds, and social construction, a blueprint for society and a nation and its people, etc. Scripture. He answered them. What's the first phrase? Have you not read? And this indicting question goes forth to the Canadian Parliament this day. Have you not read? The one who recorded for you in Holy Writ, his very plan from the beginning to establish them male and female in his image for his purposes, for his intent to glorify himself, for human procreation, and for the modeling of the gospel relationship between Jesus and the church. Have you not read or have you been reading the liberal blogs that seek to redefine human sexuality in their own image? or the perverse notions that seek through modern technology to pretend that they can be a man if they're a woman, or a woman if they're a man? Have you been reading the so-called human rights proponents who say that before a child is even old enough to decide whether or not to drink alcohol, go to war, have a license, or anything else, get married in the first place, that on their whim or preference or pretentious notion that they should be prescribed gender reassignment surgery or hormone blocking therapy that permanently maims and disfigures that which God has fearfully and wonderfully ordained and created in the womb of the woman by miraculous life-giving power in the first place. Have you not read Psalm 139 that it's God who forms the newborn in the inward parts and it is he who fearfully and wonderfully knits together every solitary molecule and cell of the human being. And those who recognize this ought to fear him and seek his authority and to bow before him because he is the author and finisher of marriage, every human being, and so forth. Scriptural revelation. Terms and conditions of marriage. Human sexuality, marriage is according to the creator's prerogative. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? The logic is this. Since there is a creator, then his word applies. 
Turn with me to Romans 5. I'm sorry, 9. This same concept is repeated in a different context in Romans 9. The analogy here is potter and vessel. How ridiculous is it for a cup to declare a mutiny over the potter and say, I want to be a vase, and then crash themselves on the floor and pretend that they're a vase. It's a foolish and ridiculous notion. No more foolish than someone who is born a woman pretending to be a man. Romans 9 verse 20. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Let me pause there and substitute in a few names. Who are you, O Canadian legislature, to answer back to God? Who are you, O Supreme Court, to answer back to God? Who are you, O Western culture, and your perversion and your self-exaltation to answer back to God? We continue with the word. Will what is molded say to the potter, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonor? The principle being, the potter has the right over the clay. Why? Because it is the Creator's prerogative to establish, to define, and to enforce, and to promote the very reason why He created us in the first place. And what is this reason? What is this purpose? He created them from the beginning, male and female, that a man should leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Marriage and human sexuality is according to, it's established according to scriptural revelation, the Creator's prerogative, and as such, it is, number three, an immutable ethic. It is a standard of righteousness that cannot be changed and will not be changed. Ultimately speaking, God will not allow it to be changed. He said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? From the beginning is the phrase in question there. Notice, with the record of Scripture, perhaps there is about 4,000 years from the day that man was created to the day when Jesus spoke. How many years from the time when Jesus spoke till now? About 2,000 and some change. In other words, Jesus' words are an explicit refutation of progressivism. They're, just because the Pharisees deemed it otherwise, God's standards for marriage have not changed in 4,000 years. And then comes along the American or Western progressive liberal rebel against God's holy word and says, a new era demands new ethics. A new people, a new culture demands new standards. We have advanced. New technology requires new philosophy. Nope. In 4,000 years, God's word had not changed. And in the 2,000 since Jesus has spoken, do you think that's a good argument? No. The argument is this. From the beginning, God has spoken. His word does not change. It is forever established. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. And it is this word, God who has spoken, who has established an immutable, that means unchanging ethic, which means standard of righteousness. Scriptural revelation, creator's prerogative, immutable, immutable ethic, created order. The terms and conditions of marriage is established according to the created order. Therefore, a man, back to our text, shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus is quoting here. What verse is he quoting? Genesis 2, 24. The very original intent of marriage as revealed from the first pages of Holy Writ. Because God 
has created and established man for a purpose, male and female, to leave and to cleave, as the older translations put it. Therefore, according to God's created order, is marriage and human relationships and sexuality established. Scriptural revelation, creator's prerogative, immutable ethic, ethic created order, and finally, and well, second to last, exclusive union. A man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh, an exclusive union, a separate family. Whereas they were under the authority and headship of the parents, you know, as children, there is a point in time where God has ordained a new family be created. And in that institution of marriage, a child, a man, leaves the covering of his parents, joins to his wife, leaves the covering of her own, and they become one flesh, a new family. This is an exclusive union. It is distinguished from the relationship to the parents of old, and it's distinguished from all perversions of that union. One man, one woman, till death do them part, according to God's original intent and design. Exclusive. Exclusive means this is what God has ordained, and all everything else that is proposed and called marriage is a profanation. It's contrary to God's original intent. It's a perversion. It's rebellion, and it's blasphemy. Because it is to say that Jesus' words do not stand today. Oh, they're so archaic, you know, they're so passe. That was for an agrarian society. They're bound by cultural norms. You know, that's intolerant. That's discriminatory. All of this language that's used to dismiss the inarguable, always never failing word of God. And we dismiss it to our own demise. Can a man and a man create life? Of course they cannot. And thus the next generation depends on obedience to God's vision of marriage and is it any wonder that the judgment of our perversion and profamation of God's holy institution has reduced the West to a one-point-something, non-sustainable birthright? Why is this? It's because we have declared war on reality, the reality established by the God who created this whole world in the first place. Do you think we'll win? No, we will die. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin only leads to a perversion, a distortion, and a ridiculous pretend game that has horrific consequences, incredible fallout, and horrible despair unless someone repents and turns from their sins and embraces the sweet redemption of Jesus Christ, who, yes, thank God, his blood is powerful enough to even redeem a one-time homosexual, a one-time pederast, a one-time, you name the sexual perversion, you know, uh, polygamist, whatever it might be. God can absolutely redeem. The scriptures say, such were some of you. But we live in a day and age where the ethics are attempted to be, re are attempting, people are attempting to redefine them. And to even incorporate under the umbrella of the Christian church a certain tolerance that is willing to consider a much bigger umbrella, a much bigger tent of what marriage truly is. But this is in contrary to the word of Jesus Christ, our Savior, Sovereign, and Lord, who has said that marriage is an exclusive union. And finally, marriage is a sacred institution. Again, in summary, marriage is established according to scriptural revelation. It is the Creator's prerogative. It is an immutable ethic. It's according to the created order. It's an exclusive union. And it's a sacred institution. They are no longer two, but one flesh. And what does Jesus say in verse 6? What therefore God has joined together, 
let no man separate. If God has built something, do you want to take a hammer to it and destroy it? You know, if we visit someone's house, let's say you're meeting someone for the first time, who want to make a good impression. They invite you over for dinner. So you play, you know, this is what we do anyways. We give our kids a little instruction on the way. Mind your manners. Wait to be asked. Show respect and honor. Why? Because this is not your house. You are in this house at the pleasure and according to the goodwill and grace of the host, right? So we all understand this. What is God's house? We've asked this question before. The house of the Lord, in one sense, is everything that He has created. In Him we live and move and have our being. And the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the creatures and all that dwell therein. So, rebellion in this area, what God has put together, let no man separate, is like taking a hammer and a can of spray paint in full view of the owner of the house who's just invited you over to a great meal. Say, come and sit at my table. No thanks. You take your sledgehammer and you smash their fine china. You throw the turkey through the window and you begin to spray paint obscenities all over their furniture. A shocking picture. A drastic, you know, uh, or a, a drastic reality in your mind might come to view with that analogy. I can't imagine doing something. What a cringe thing to do. A person like that is mentally ill, should be locked up, call the cops. You want to disassociate, can imagine something so shameful. Such a social, uh, you know, horrific, horrific thing to disrupt the goodwill and graces of human relationships in that regard. I can't imagine doing such a thing. Yet, what have we done? Through legislation such as I've described, and in the culture is increasingly tolerant to the profanation and perversion of marriage. We've taken the hammer of our own ideas and the spray paint of our obscene profanities, and we've spray painted it all over God's house. We've smashed his furniture. We've despised his dwelling. We've thrown his things against the wall. And we spit in his face. And there's coming a day of reckoning. Is there no fear of the Lord? Legislature of Canada. Is there no fear of the Lord? So-called tolerant individual in this modern culture of the West. Is there no fear of the Lord on the Supreme Court? What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. The fear of God is to be a reality and a foremost priority in our mind when we consider His sacred institutions. And we live in an era that tramples on God's sacred institutions. Church is optional. Stupid COVID regulations deem it, you know, illegal to meet. Pastors have been arrested in Canada for that very thing and in the United States, trampling on the institution of the assembly of God's holy beloved who he shed his blood, died for, and commands that they worship him in spirit and in truth. And likewise, marriage, that glorious picture of one man and one woman joined together in that holy matrimony, that covenant, that unbreakable except by death bond that is supposed, supposed to model God's undying care and his compassion and his covenant commitment to his own bride, the church. We need fear of the Lord to return to our mind and mentality, and we must repent and turn to him because Jesus Christ is the author and authority over marriage. Final point this morning, defying the rulers of his day, Jesus declared, 
the cultural corruption of marriage, the author and authority over marriage, and finally, the covenant context of marriage. <clears throat> Verses 7 through 9, they said to him, let no man, or I'm sorry, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? The logic of the Pharisees is this. If we can't get him to join the Hillel school or the Shammai school, you know, and create conflict between these different ideas as to the interpretation of passages like Deuteronomy 24, then perhaps we can get him on record as disagreeing with Moses. But even here, of course, they are short-sighted. And as he corrects the record, he, can, he interprets perfectly what the law of Moses accommodated at the time. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. In this sense, <clears throat> Jesus, the covenantal context of marriage and the context of the fallen world draws a distinction between command and concession. In other words, since divorce was reality, regulations had to come in in this fallen world. However, it was not commanded or ordained or God's design from the first place. The very sad and horrific fact that regulations for divorce had to exist in a fallen world should remind us of the failure and the fallout of the human condition and move us to repent. So strong is this case that if you look at the greater context of Scripture, it becomes more striking indeed. Without time to turn there, mark in for your own study, Isaiah 51 and 2. This is the voice of God through the prophet saying, I refuse to get a certificate of divorce against my people. And who deserved to be divorced? That is, broken covenant relationship, utterly rejected more than those who had such great revelation from Sinai and turned against their God and Savior in their idolatry. And though God disciplines his people for a season, he did not write a certificate of divorce. Why? Because on Deuteronomy 24, once you write a certificate of divorce, redemption of that marriage is impossible. Jesus uses this very law to tell his people, I did not write you a certificate of divorce, though you and I both know you deserved it. Why? Because I have plans to redeem. And these petty squabbles of these Pharisees who seek to be a law unto themselves were only interested in the law so they could use it as a tool to shore up their own arrogant authority and influence over people. Well, they're squabbling over <clears throat> when is divorce permitted, when is it forbidden. Here stands the one. In service to God's covenant relationship, Jesus Christ, who would not have come if God had submitted that certificate of divorce. And these Pharisees refused to recognize or bow before the only one who can set them in right standing with their, say, with their Lord, who they have sinned against over and over and over in their proud, arrogant lives. Jesus Christ incarnate was proof that God did not submit a certificate of divorce against his people, but indeed, through the redemption of his son who had shed his own blood, would die in the place of wicked sinners to ransom them back to himself. And that glorious vow renewal ceremony, if you will, where those who had broken faith with him, you and I as sinners, will be gathered in at the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is the ultimate picture of that renewed relationship. The communion table speaks of it through the blood and through the self-giving, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, someone who doesn't appreciate that and is unwilling to make the distinction and is only interested in the law as a tool to shore up their own arrogant presumptions, they're blind, they're deaf. They need their eyes open 
to a Savior. They're missing it. <clears throat> and this is what Jesus is saying. Now, furthermore, he says this in the closing of our text today. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Jesus is commenting on the relationship between marriage and law. And the picture is this. Imagine, according to one of the schools of the rabbis, that you've grown out of love. You've fallen out of love with your spouse or whatever. And you lust after and have an adulterous heart over someone else. And so you find some excuse in the law to get a divorce. And then eventually you remarry. Do you think you can use law like that and get away with it? Oh, it's not adultery. I issued a certificate of divorce. Moses laws with you in Deuteronomy 24. No, I followed the rules or whatever. I am justified in my sin on the basis of my interpretation of the law. You see, Jesus seals this loophole forever by saying, and he says this, reiterates it all, of course, in the Sermon on the Mount, that sin is an issue of the heart, and you are, not, and you are never justified by use of the law to create a loophole or reset the terms. Do we live in an era where by the force of fiat legislation made up out of whole cloth law, we seek to justify our perversions of God's created order and his divine intent in the first place? Yes, we do. This is what was going on then with regards to I wanna get divorced really because I wanna marry someone else and it's happening now with I don't wanna be held to the strictures of God's one man one woman till death do them part ideal. I want to be free to pursue my sexual proclivities however I well choose. And so we invent laws out of whole cloth to deem it right, proper, virtuous, and permissible to break God's holy law. Will that work? Absolutely not. Will this appeal stand before the judgment seat of Christ? No, it will not. These laws are nothing more, nothing more than injustice codified by statute. They are blasphemy on paper, on record, with the voting records of legislatures who support them, that declare them guilty before the God who created them in the first place, has established and ordained the holy institution of marriage, and refuses to allow it to be redefined by the Pharisees of our day. This is where we are. This is where we stand. The words of Jesus Christ condemn the actions taken by Canadian Parliament in the passing of the C4 bill that deems even abdicating for so-called heterosexual cisgender relationships to be against their ruling. And these are just modern categories for what God has established in his created order, man and woman, as the, co uh, the complementary, specifically designed partners in God-ordained holy marriage, holy matrimony. Jesus reminds us of the covenant context of marriage, God's ultimate purpose for it, and says it will not be compromised by our fake laws. <clears throat> you cannot justify adultery by writing or interpreting a law to grant you permission to violate the covenant. You can't justify homosexuality by writing or interpreting a law to grant you permission to violate the covenant. You can't justify pedophilia by writing or interpreting a law to grant you permission to violate the covenant. Oh, no, 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 that's that slippery slope argument. You can almost hear the objectors saying, what I have repeatedly said over the years, this is not a slippery slope argument precisely, this is a grounding objection. Once you remove the ground of human sexuality and marriage from the word of God to the whim of culture, all bets are off. 
And this has been proven time and again by the downward slide and by the perverse trajectory that we have been going down as a society. <clears throat> when there is no grounding for ethics, then the most influential voices and the strongest basis desires and the most ardently rebellious who share in a little bit of power and legislation and influence in a pharisaical kind of way, they are the ones who seek to redefine stuff in their own image. But you cannot justify any sin by writing or interpreting a law to grant you permission to violate God's terms of covenant. Legislation by a civil order will never justify transgressing God's immutable ethic, God's unshakable truth. As then, so today, legislation often serves the purpose of resetting virtues and values, a social engineering project to remake human relationships according to our rebellious whims and preferences. Laws of this sort must be exposed and defied. It will always be sin to pursue sexual identities and relationships outside of God's created order. And preachers of good faith and compassion will always rise to the duty to proclaim this truth and call our culture and our magistrates to repentance, come what may. Let us close in prayer. O oh, Father, as our hearts are struck, as we consider in its clarity and power the double-edged sword of your word of truth, I pray that it would move us to cling to the cross all the tighter. There isn't a person in the hearing of this message who is unfamiliar with the perversion of sin. There is no one who will be justified on the basis of their self-merit. We all fall short of the glory of God. Nevertheless, we confess that there is a standard of righteousness and that there is a perfection required of your holiness and that there is an immutable word which will never be changed that declares to us forever and all time what is holy, what is just, what is true, what is right, and what is wrong. We sinners plead the blood of Jesus Christ as our only means of measuring up. And we thank you, Lord, for revealing to us that where we have broken your law, Jesus Christ has kept it perfectly. And where we deserved hell, he took upon himself the wrath of the Father on Calvary. And where we declare war on his rules in our society, laws, and culture, and otherwise, he stands nevertheless as a sufficient Savior for those who would repent and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, and in him is forgiveness of their one-time rebellion. May his word go forth unabated, and as the days in some measures grow darker, may your light shine all the brighter, so that there may be those who join us in celebrating deliverance and freedom, joy and holiness, serving Christ, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, and aligning ourselves with the one who has spoken in creation in the beginning and through his word graciously delivered throughout covenant history. I am God. I am King. I am Savior. I am Lord. I am righteousness. I am justice. I am holiness. I am truth. And in me, you will find life and life everlasting. Thank you, Jesus, for these truths. May we be faithful to them, even as we seek to be faithful in our calling beyond this place Though the days are challenging and the cost might, might be great, remind us that it is certainly worth it. 
the praise of your name, the advancement of your kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.